This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And we are, of course, September 2019. The end of August saw my uh, birthday come by. And uh, I thought, you know what would be fun? Would be to treat myself. And so how do I treat myself? Well, I do an interview that I think is just going to be absolutely fun. Sort of, you know, out out of the uh, the beaten path. And so I was offered an interview with Sarah from Bananarama. And now, having grown up in the 80s and, and having gone to high school in the 80s, you would get a a mix, you know, at a school dance of of Billy Idol and 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 Flock of Seagulls and Brian Adams, at least in Canada, and, and uh, you know, Def Leppard's uh, Fooling or, or something like that would come on. But uh, you would also get a steady stream of Madonna and, and Bananarama and bands like that. And so, you know, whether it's albums that I had in my collection or not. You you can't deny the fun factor that is Bananarama. Uh, sometimes it was fun, sometimes it was goofy, but either way, they would have a way to put a smile on your face. And of course, as I got a little bit older, went off to college and so on and so forth, uh, you go out to clubs, and that song, Venus, was everywhere. Every single club was playing it, and then it, eventually it became every cinema lobby, you know, every movie theater lobby and every mall. You couldn't escape the song. And even as we've gotten older, at least in Canada, I don't know about in the States or other places, but uh, a lot of companies have been using the song in commercials, and so their impact has been great. And, and I'll, I'll give you this, we're, we're a quick comparison. You know, the band has had 30, 30 UK Top 75 singles. And you would think, well, hey, that's, that's okay. That's a, but Culture Club, everybody knows Culture Club. Everybody knows Boy George. They, they, they had a whole look and image in the, in the 80s. They've only had 13 Top 30 or Top 75 hits in the UK. More than double for Bananarama. Uh, they're, they've also had 12 UK Top 75 albums. 12 UK Top 75 albums. And since I'm comparing with um, Culture Club, they've only had nine. Uh, the band's new album for Bananarama, In Stereo, has also entered the charts in the UK. So how about that? And um, just for fun, if you want to compare to the rock world, the hard rock world, Def Leppard, you know, Le Seul Unique, the, the one and only Def Leppard have had 26 UK top 25 or top 75 singles, and the mighty, mighty Kiss have only had 13. So Bananarama, at least in chart success, has been kicking butt. Now, the band's been around since the early, early 80s. They are getting very, very close to 40 years in the business. In fact, they started in 1981. So 2021 will be 40 years. I mean, you know, so 
you might think, well, why are you talking to Bananarama on your Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn show? And I'll tell you why. I am going to use the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame definition of rock. If, you know, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame can have Madonna and Run DMC and, and, and some of those bands, well, then why not? And if you look at the success of Bananarama, they might have to be considered for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know? So, anyway, uh, on that, uh, I will give you my interview. And, and this is like a little birthday present to myself. So I just thought, this is going to be fun. And it was fun. And it was glorious. Here is the one, the only, Sarah Dalene from Bananarama. We are speaking with Sarah Dallin of Bananarama. Of course, the band has a new album out called In Stereo. Sarah, this is an absolute delight to talk to you. I usually handle, you know, the Kisses and the Metallicas and those kinds of bands, but when they said Bananarama, I said, F yeah, I have to. Oh, <laughs> thank you so much. That's so nice. Thank you. Well, you know, listen, I, I, I grew up in the, uh, in the 80s. It's actually my birthday today, and I grew up in the 80s, and I, I remember birthday. being through high... Thank you. Uh, I'm getting a little. I'm getting older, which is not good. Yeah, but uh, we no, all are. we all are. But I, I remember, of yeah. course, being at at uh, at clubs and all that, and, and it was Cruel Summer, and there was Venus, and and it didn't matter if you listened to Metallica or if you listened to Aerosmith or if any other. You would hear that, and it would put a smile on your face. And I don't care if you. And if you don't agree, you're a liar because it does. It's just fun music. Yeah, I mean, I love Cruel Summer. That's a song that still, when we do uh, our live stuff now, um, that's a song I still love singing. I never tire of it. I think it was such an unusual song for its time. And um, thank goodness somebody in L.A. had heard it and put it in the film Karate Kid, which obviously gave us a, a real step up for our first sort of top 10 in America. But, yeah, I really have such fond memories of that song, you know, filming the video in New York and the excitement of going to America for for the first time that, that yeah it's a really special song for me it really is so before we get to all the the past let, let's deal with the present uh, the new album is mm -hmm. in stereo the first album in a decade uh talk to me about the importance of making new music because we know very well you've had 30 hits uh, that's 30 mm -hmm. hits in the top 75 on the uk charts you could certainly go mm -hmm. out and do a whole concert and play nothing but hits and still have some left yeah. over why the desire to stay creative and make new music? I think, I mean, we've always been creative. Karen and I have made albums since the 80s, obviously, um, and we've done EPs. But this was the first time we actually thought, you know, let's make an album. We actually self-funded it. We produced it with our friend. Um, we put it out. We got a team around us. We were in control of absolutely everything. And to be honest, it's just like, it's what I... I've always done, I've made music and it's what I enjoy, writing songs and performing. And if someone buys it, great. And if they don't, there's not that pressure of the 80s where it's like, oh yes, this must go top 10, this must be. There's no sort of rat race now. It really is for the love of it. And uh, we absolutely loved making it. And we made it over a couple of years um, and then just thought we'll, we'll put it out ourselves and see what happens. And it was our first top 30 album in simply ages in the UK. Singles did really well at radio. Um, and, you know, we played Glastonbury this year and we've done some amazing shows. Just got back from 
uh, Japan where we played uh, Summer Sonic, which are huge festivals out there. So it's been an amazing year for us. It really has. So talk to me about the process of recording, because I look over the discography and you've always had a writing credit. You're not one of these yep. pop bands where different producers come in and write everything for you and say, OK, pretty ladies, go sing it. Right. You, you, yeah. You've been involved. Yeah. Talk to me about that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I love writing. I, I left school and trained to be a journalist. I did a year at um, London College of Fashion where I trained as a journalist. But um, Karen and I started the group with the Siobhan, obviously, um, almost instantly. And then it was picked up by the Fun Boy 3, um, Terry Hall from the specials. And the next minute, we were kind of on, on top of the pops. And um, so it kind of snowballed. Um, but... For me, it's very personal what you write about. Sometimes it can be trivial stuff, but it's it very much has to come from us. And I, I can't imagine if I was 19 now and some guy in their 30s or 40s writing me songs, but it's just not personal enough. For, for me, you know, some people don't mind and it works, but for me, I, I always like to be involved in what we do. As you should. Talk to me about the differences of sort of the mid-80s writing a pop tune and writing a pop tune in 2019. I would assume that it's not sort of the same recipe. Well, I think when you start out, um, obviously we had no experience. So we were very much reliant on finding really good producers that would co-write with us. And um, that would come by us being in clubs and hearing a track and thinking, for example, it would be Imagination with Body Talk. And we thought, right, who produced that? And it was Jolly and Swain. So we, we hunted them down, made an album with them. We did Robert De Niro, Cruel Summer. Um, and, and then uh, we loved Spin Me Around Like a Record by, name escapes me now. Dead or Alive. Dead or Alive. Right. Yes. Um, that was sort of like five years in. Um, and so we did Venus with them, um, Love in the First Degree. I had a rumor. Um but we've always co-written and, and now you kind of learn your trade really in the public eye. And so I think we're very good at arranging vocals and getting hooks in and just writing yeah, what I think is great pop songs. And we don't pretend to be anything more than a pop group. And um, that's what we enjoy. We sing well in harmony. Um, you know, it, it's just an easy process. We work with Ian Masterson on the last three albums and, um, that is just it's in his, his studios in his house so it's all it's very comfortable it's very and it's very creative and it's just a really enjoyable experience it is um let me go back to the beginnings because I, I i find your beginnings very interesting you are mm -hmm. doing vocals uh on i guess it's called denmark street for the professionals which is sex pestle steve jones paul cook your first single which i can never pronounce but it's a oh, yeah, um, yeah, something like that. <laughs> it, yeah. It, right. It is in uh, Swahili. Yeah. How, how did you go from being sort of friends with the Sex Pistols, singing in Swahili to becoming sort of the big hit makers? Well, Karen and I were living in the YWCA and we had nowhere to live because that was closing down. And we had met Paul Cook in a club. And he said that the two of us could live in Denmark Street, which was basically Malcolm McLaren's office on the first level. And then below was just this hovel of a rehearsal studio. It literally had no heating, no water, no bath, nothing. It was just a hovel. But it was it was where the pistols used to be. And it was it had Sid Vicious's bondage trousers in the cupboard. It had John Lydon's drawings of Sid and Nancy around the wall. So for two little punks, it was just like, wow, this is amazing. And it was in the heart of London. Denmark Street is very famous. Um, 
or, you know, the stones recorded in studios there. I mean, it's a very famous street. Um, and we went from making a demo with Paul um, to then it being played on, on the, the radio. And Terry Hall just, just heard it and really loved it. They saw a picture of us in a magazine called The Face and called us and said, did we want to sing on his album? And we were like, does he, we're not proper singers. Does he know, you know, is this going to work out? And it was just amazing because... They gave us a drum and a maraca and Karen played keyboards with Terry and it was just on really saying something and ain't what you do. And it was just a really great learning curve. And we were so shy, but um, the three of them were shy as well. And so the six of us traveled around, you know, doing TV shows around Europe and it was just cutting our teeth and, and learning our way. So there was no stage school and it was not manufactured. It was just very organic. And I just think we, we have learned you know, as we've gone along, I mean, our career now is sort of over 35 years. And, you know, it, it's so lovely to now have a sort of hit album this this far into our career. Because as females, it's also really hard, you know, when you get older and people think, oh, well, you know. But I think, you know, I don't think you, you can put an age on something you enjoy. It, it may be that music is for young people, but I don't think it is. I think everybody you know, should continue to do what they love, regardless of what press or medium things people say. I agree. And, and I'm sure that B.B. Uh, King and, and, and Mick Jagger probably agreed as well. So, in fact, <laughs> talk to me about that, though, because when you look at the bands that have been around, uh, the Rolling Stones, the Kisses, the mm -hmm. Aerosmith, it's all just sort of that raw, classic rock that pop bands don't really stick around. They come and they go, gone here today, gone tomorrow. Talk to me about having that music career and being able to survive for 35 years and, and just keep it going, because it really is unique to the genre. Yeah, I think there were very few female bands, particularly uh, in the 80s. So I think in a way there was that sort of novelty of the three girls from the UK. But um, I don't know. I just I think I've always been not overly ambitious, but very tenacious. And I, I, I love what I do. And I... I don't I don't want to put a number on it or a sort of well you're in you're you're out you're you know I I really don't care it's, it's what I love doing and it, it's what I'll I'll always do until there's nobody left to buy the records but we were amazed by you know the reaction to this album particularly from the media as well it's been it's been you know wonderful the media has been in, in, particularly wonderful with this. You, usually when when it's an older band, they usually go, oh, it doesn't sound like their classic hit from 1985. Yeah. And you're like, well, yeah, well, it's not 1985. Maybe that's why. Um, Goldmine magazine has called the band everything that was glorious about 1980s pop and then went on to say that you have had more hits in their chart lifetime than Duran Duran, The Fix, In Excess, Spandau Ballet, Culture Club, Wang Chung, Depeche Mode, and virtually every <laughs> other 80s star you could mention. Wow. What a quote. Didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. amazing. Well, it, it is kind of amazing. Um, talk to me a little bit about that success, because when you think of Duran Duran or you think of Culture Club, you know, there are one or two big songs come to mind. But when we think of Banana Rama, you go, oh, yeah, they did Robert De Niro. Oh, yeah, they do The Shy One. Oh, yeah, they did... Um, yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that, because it really is, I think it catches a lot of people by surprise. Yes, I think when people really do in-depth interviews and, and actually find out what really makes us tick, rather than just glossing over, oh, a pop band from the 80s, three girls, did they write songs, did they not? You know, it's quite, for me, just insulting, because, I mean, I'm not saying we are the biggest and the best or whatever, but 
you know, we've always written our own music and I think all the ideas have come from, from us and the same as Duran have as well. And I remember I watched a documentary with Simon um, and, you know, the rest of the boys and they said when they didn't have their first, the first album after their huge success wasn't a success, they were like, thought they were devastated and then they did another album that wasn't quite such a big hit and they thought, mm, okay, and then they did a third album and they thought, we don't care. This is what we love doing. We're going to tour. We're going to write the songs we want to write. And, and you know, people come around to your way of thinking and you're not going to please everybody. Not everybody's a pop fan, but, uh, you know, for our fans, they've been loyal. And having toured so much recently, I mean, people have flown from Australia to America, come to our UK album launch shows. And it's just like, it is amazing. They have been there since 1982. And I couldn't be more grateful and more you know proud of, of what we've done it's been you know particularly for Karen and I have been just a duo for about 30 years and it's it's just been amazing yeah and so in fact talk to me a little bit about Karen because she's been with you in the band since 81 you've known her since before that what has she yeah. meant to you and I'm going to ask you on two levels here but what has she meant to you professionally but also what has she meant to you personally over all these years well Karen is my best friend we've known each other since we were babies uh we went to the same school we lived two streets apart we left home together we formed the group together we lived in Denmark street together I mean she really is yeah my best friend what can I say it's the most fantastic thing to be able to travel the world doing something you love and to be able to do it with your best friend so um, on on that level, she's everything, and she's kind of opposite to me in many ways, which I think is why we work so well together. We hardly ever argue. People always think that's just a lie, but we just don't argue. I mean, I'm the bossy one, and, and she's the sort of the calmer one. But uh, yeah, we work really well together. And um, writing songs is fantastic. I think initially Karen was a little bit reticent to write songs, a bit too shy, and um, she's very musical and she's a trained pianist um and very good with harmonies and we work things out and it's just such an enjoyable process and um we work really well together and like the same music and uh same influences so lucky in that respect it really is now in uh, 2017 you did the reunion tour with uh i forgot the first Fei Fei here i can't i can't yeah I yeah. can't, I can't, see, I'm Canadian, <laughs> I go Sabahin, but that's not how you pronounce it, but, <laughs> but, but talk to me about that, why, you know, you had worked as a duo for so many years, why mm -hmm. was it interesting to bring that back, and, and bringing it back, you get that extra texture, you get that extra color to the songs and to the performances, what did she bring to the band, and, and, you know, are, are you sad that it had to end, and that you had, you're back to being a duo? Uh, no, it was only ever a, a one-off thing. We had this idea, um, a friend of ours said, um, have you ever thought about doing a reunion tour, just a one-off thing? And we said, no, not really. Why would we do that? We're quite happy the way we are. But the more we thought about it, and we bumped into Siobhan over the years and always sort of said, oh, we should do a gig somewhere or just a one-off thing. And it just evolved. We, we talked a lot on the phone because she obviously lives in LA. We talked a lot on the phone and um, we just thought, let's do a UK tour and see how it goes. And it went absolutely fantastic. It was really um, amazing. Um, but it was lovely to work with her. And I mean, uh, it's funny because I haven't really seen her since she left the band in any sort of length of time. So spending time with her again was like going back in time. And we laughed and laughed and laughed. And it was hilarious. It was great fun. But at the end of the day, obviously, we're a duo now and 
Karen and I obviously wanted to get back to our, our this album that's coming out. So we sort of parted ways again. But um, it was an amazing kind of, it was a moment in time and, and uh, I'll, I'll never forget that either. Yeah, it really was. And, 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 you know, the videos that I've seen from those performances look just like fun. Everything, everything Bananarama does is fun, I have to say. Um <laughs> 1984, uh, you were, of course, involved with uh, Band-Aid, Bob Geldof's Band-Aid. Talk mm-hmm. to me about that moment because that set off, you know, We Are the World in Canada, Northern Lights. And it, it really set a, a movement across the globe where artists said, hey, we've got to do something. Uh, t- talk to me about that. And, and also, yeah. do we need another movement like that where artists get together and say, hey, we've got to do something regardless of what the something might be? It is amazing how Bob and Midgeor pulled that off, how they brought it all together. They're so moved by what was happening that they managed to bring that all together. And the phenomenon that it was and how much money it raised was just incredible. And the awareness across the world, you know, I think you should always try and use, if you have that kind of uh, fame or opportunity, try and use it for for the good. But um, we didn't know it was going to be that big. I mean, we shared an office with the Boomtown Rats or Bob. And um, so he called our manager on one Sunday morning, said, get the girls down with an expletive. Um, to the studio in wherever it was, West London, and uh, we're doing this charity song. So we sort of duly rolled out of bed and and turned up there. And then I saw Sting walking down the street and Bono and Paul Weller and George Michael. And it was just like, oh, my God, what's going on? It's absolutely huge. And then they, I think they wrote the song while they was kind of in the studio, but then the Durannies arrived and... It was a phenomenal day, but you don't lose sight of what it was for. And it was mo- it was amazing and great that it sort of snowballed into the American uh, song as well and even more awareness. And then obviously Live Aid, which was incredible. Yeah, li- Live Aid it was the moment. Um, just quickly talk to me about uh, – well, in fact, I want to look at a couple of songs. Obviously, there's Venus, but, but you also covered the Beatles' Help back in 89. Yeah. What was that like for for you? Because everybody keeps talking about the Beatles being the biggest the biggest thing in pop music, and uh, but I might argue that yeah. your success has, has been equally matched, right? <laughs> You're very kind. Um, well, uh, the Beatles song "Help" was for um, Comic Relief, which is another charity um, uh, that we did, and we did it with um, a comedy duo called French and Saunders, who are very big in the UK. Um, so that that's why we covered it. And I have to say, that song is so easy to sing. I don't know what uh, chords they use, but they were just, it was such an easy song to sing. And it, it's a pop song, essentially, if you covered it. It's a pop song. And I think when the Beatles started out, their songs were very poppy and very easy to kind of uh, structure and sing along to. Obviously, they went on to much higher, loftier things. But they, those songs are really great pop songs. And uh, it's really enjoyable to sing. It really is, and of course, uh, the the song everybody asks you about. So I'm gonna I'm gonna copy, but but Venus, uh, you know, I remember specifically where I was when I heard it because I would be at this this club that would play it all the time. Yeah, it's, it's just exceptionally fun. Talk to me about how that came about. It is, of course, a cover song, but it yeah. became the version, right? Yes, it did. I mean. We had, um, as I say, we'd heard Dead or Alive, You Spin Me Around Like a Record, and it was the, that high-energy beat, which may have been going for a few years, but to us, we were very young. We'd never heard it before, that kind of 
energy. And we thought, let's put that on Venus. Um, let's put it, and the producer said, no, I'm not sure that's going to work. And it's like, well, can you just try it? Just try it. And uh, so we, we, we did Venus and it was literally number one everywhere apart from the UK. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was just, I don't know what it is. It, it's just a great song. I mean, I believe it has been number one with uh, Shocking Blue before, but uh, time moved on and it was the 80s and it was our version and it was, you know, I think a great little video, really enjoyable. And it's the one that caught everyone's imagination. It, it certainly did. So so where do we go from here? Now, you're, it was a decade since the last record. Do you want to get back into a more sort of regular once every two years or yeah i think so okay i think so it's bizarre because before we'd have thought well shall we make another album is anyone interested and now because this one has done you know reasonably well for us we're just thinking i love what we're doing and it's so easy to to actually do it yourself because times have changed since when you needed a big record company and you pay a fortune on studio bills and you literally can make it for a half or a quarter of that money and you can i mean we've been in long enough to know who our radio people are our tv people press so we have that team there you really don't need the middleman and it's it's quite an easy way to to release music and obviously with the internet and how things are generated through posts and yeah, the marketing is sort of taken care of you uh, taken care of as well. So I mean, times have changed, and it's just it's a lot easier, even though there's a lot more people out there doing it now because it's more accessible. But uh, it's enjoyable, it really is. It really is. By the way, the uh, the article that I was quoting from uh, uh, Goldmine magazine is actually titled "Bigger Than the Beatles: Thirty Years of Bananarama." So <laughs> no. Yes, you'll have to look that one up. It's really good. Um, oh. Well, hey, that, that's what it's called. It, it, it was from. Do you a... know what? Um, Paul and Linda, when we had um, a hit with Shy Boy, sent us a telegram of congratulations, and we were so thrilled. If you remember what telegrams are, I do. That's a long time ago. Yes. yes. So they sent a congratulating and from Paul McCartney and Linda. It was just amazing. Well, yeah, that's not that's not bad yeah. actually. Um, I, I am going to quote the uh, the, the the singles again. Like, again, thirty UK top seventy five singles. But knowing that you've had all the success in the UK, how important was it to break in the US market for you? Is, was that sort of a make or break kind of moment, or you could have been like a status quo and just had UK success and that would have been good enough? How, how important was North America to Bananarama? I don't think um, when we started, we didn't think there would be, it was going to be a long career. We, we were young, we were teenagers, we just thought, let's put some music out. And then it became a hit and a hit. And then, as I say, Cruel Summer happened for us. So it was it's like, wow, the world is our oyster. We can we can kind of go everywhere. I think the the um, beginnings of MTV were, were a huge help because you've got to see the band and the artists and then image was really important, the way people looked. And I think I think music is always a mixture of everything and it's not always the people with the best voice. It, it's about creativity, great ideas and great looks and, and just putting the whole thing together is just, you know, it's what music should be about. It can be about anything you want it to be and it shouldn't just be about a man with a guitar around his neck or someone, you know, with a phenomenal voice. All those things are great, but not everybody's born with everything so you you kind of use your tools to the best of your ability and your creativity to the best of your ability and great if you get fans that stick with you as long as we have it's it, you know perfect 
It has been an absolutely amazing career, probably better than if you had been a journalist, quite frankly. <laughs> right? I mean, yes. Uh, and I'll finish with this. How how difficult do you think the marketplace has become for emerging artists? Because if we had your story, and instead of being 1981 or 82, it had been 2019, do you think you'd be able to achieve the same thing? What are some of the things a new artist has to do to become the next Bananarama? Well, I, I, I think it doesn't matter. Obviously, I don't think if I went on there, X factor, I would necessarily be chosen with the greatest voice. But the thing is, it doesn't matter what um, decade it's in. It's whether you've got that creativity and that drive and that. I, I, I didn't want to be famous for the sake of being famous. I wanted to have a career and I loved writing. I wanted to be a journalist. So I loved writing, you know, lyrics and stories and all that kind of thing. And I, I think it doesn't matter what decade we came in. I think we were just still made it through because it was the three of us together that we were all going the same way and we wanted the same thing and we were tuned into to fashion and to clubs and to music and to people. We just put it all together and it all just worked. And I think we would still have that tenacity now. It, it all just worked and, and I think you had the most important thing. You had that crossover appeal because a fan like me who likes Metallica and Kiss could yeah. hear your, your song on the radio at a club and go, this is just fun. This is fun. I don't care. It's fun. Right. And also, it, who says you have to just like one genre of music? I love some heavy metal. You know, I'll headbang to Metallica. I don't mind. It's like I love all kinds of music. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad you say that. And, and yes, our, our thing is party music and fun. And you'll find slightly deeper things on albums. But yes, essentially, it's about uh, writing great pop songs. It really is. And uh, Sarah, yeah. I know we're running out of time, so I'll say thank you. But this has been an absolute thrill. I mean, you know, hey, listen. Oh, thank you. There you go. Watching Bananarama on Much Music in Canada was, was always a good time. It was just fun music. <laughs> it was fun music. So there you go. As we yeah, say in Montreal, merci as we say in Montreal. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye now. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk.